Well, once again, good morning. If you didn't catch my name before, my name is Alex Fleming, and I'm the youth pastor here at Berean. And this year, we've been spending the Advent season in the book of Genesis. And at face value, the connection between Christmas and Genesis might not seem obvious. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, the book of Genesis has the fingerprints of the gospel all over it. In fact, it, it, that's one of the main reasons that Genesis is one of my very favorite books of the Bible. So when Nathan pitched his idea for the Christmas series to me and asked if I would take the 22nd, I was excited. I was quite, sort of like, you want me to preach out of, out of Genesis? Twist my arm, why don't you? Uh, because in Genesis, we're first introduced to God. And as the story unfolds, we see God reveal more and more of who he is through the events that take place. We see God as creator, but we also get to see God as redeemer. We see God as loving, as patient, as involved, as faithful and trustworthy. And those last two go hand in hand. God's faithfulness proves his trustworthiness. But but we as humans have a tricky relationship with these things, um, faithfulness and trustworthiness. Oftentimes we, v- we, we struggle to view others as being faithful, or we hesitate to give each other our trust. Because in our sin, we've proven to not be 100% worthy of these things. Sometimes we fail to follow through on promises, We lie, we break confidence. And whether these things are intentional or or sometimes they're inadvertent, the result is the same. We don't freely give out our trust. And where we run into trouble is when we allow this defense mechanism to bleed into our relationship with God. When we stop completely trusting in God to faithfully provide. That's where we run into trouble. And my family recently took some family photos. And the other day I was looking at them uh, and just as I was preparing for this morning, and one particular photo made me think, you know, this is what our trust in the Father should look like. And I think that, that the idea of childlike faith is so apt in this area. And so, so uh, this photo that I've thrown up, it's a photo of our, our daughter Elliot. And, uh, in this photo, I've, I've very, very carefully thrown her very, very slightly into the air. And this photo is capturing that moment where she is coming back down. And she is experiencing the sensation of falling. And the only thing standing between her and hitting the floor are the hands of her father. And what I want you to take note of here is is the expression on her face. And this expression speaks of exhilaration. It speaks of joy. uh, And it doesn't speak of fear. Because she hasn't experienced what it looks like or what it feels like to have her trust broken. Adults struggle with trust that looks like that. 
If you've ever done a trust fall exercise, you, you know what, what I'm talking about. That moment before you fall, trusting in others to catch you, that's usually a, a nervous moment. And, and we often do trust falls in our, in our youth campouts. So I went picture diving to, to previous campouts and, and I've came up with, with this gem. And this is from my first ever campout. And one of our youth leaders, Cliff Johnson, um, bless his heart, is trusting our middle school students. And he, he is, as you, we can see, he's on his way down trusting them. But uh, I think that he would agree in saying that there is some apprehension, understandably, in his expression in this picture. Because we as humans oftentimes struggle in fully putting our trust in others. But God's desire is for our trust in him to look like this picture of Elliot. Our trust in him should be absolute. It should be unreserved. So last week, we looked at God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 for his promise for descendants and to bring blessing to all nations through that line. And this week, we're going to see God ask Abraham to put all of that on the line and to trust him. And in this account, we see God reveal and remind us of his faithful and trustworthy character and the way that he does provide for Abraham. And, that, and we'll see that the threads of this story and that of God's provision for all creation by sending Jesus, the threads of those two stories are inseparable. And so today, if you haven't figured it out yet, we'll be looking at, Gen- uh, at Genesis chapter 22, if you want to start turning there. But first, let me pray before we open up God's word. And so, Father, I, I do thank you for being a God who's personal, for being a God who loves us, who provides, and being a God who reveals those things about yourself to us, your creation. And so I pray as we look at the story of your provision for Abraham that um, you would help us to apply this to our own everyday lives uh, and be reminded of the way that you provide for us each and every day. And so we pray for your spirit to guide us in this time of looking at your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at Genesis 22 today, but before we do that, I want, I want to backtrack by two verses and look at what comes just before this account. So this is from Genesis chapter 21, verses 33 and 34. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So what we see here is a a period of stability for Abraham. Isaac, the son that God had promised to Abraham, has been born. Hagar and Ishmael, a source of conflict in Abraham's family, have left. And Abraham is at peace with those around them. And he finally gets to stay in one place for an extended period of time. And there he worships God and refers to him as the eternal God or the enduring God, recognizing the fact that though everything, that through everything uh, that Abraham has been through, good and bad, God has remained with him. 
But the end of chapter 21 isn't the, uh, and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days of this story. God has more in store for Abraham that will put his faith and his trust in God to the test like never before. So starting up in, in chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So, so after a period of time, God decides to test Abraham. And now, when we test something, what we're doing is stretching something to its limits. In school, a test or exam stretches the limits of knowledge on a particular topic. When children disobey their parents, they're stretching the limits of what they can get away with. And sort of similarly, when God tests us, he's stretching the limits of our love for him, of our fear of him, of our trust in him, or or really any other number of things. But the big difference between our tests and God's are that his never go too far. His purpose in testing is always achieved. And you know what? We, we can't claim that level of success. I think testing the limits of a rubber band is an apt image for the way that we test others. If you go too far, the rubber band snaps, destroying it and rendering it useless. And if you test it too often, the rubber band gets weak, worn out, and loses its ability to stretch. Again, I think that's an apt image of the, of the way that we test others. But God's testing, on the other hand, I think is more like kneading and stretching bread dough. As you work the dough, as you stretch it, it gets stronger and it gets more elastic. Its ability to stretch is increased by that process. Uh, and if you've ever heard of the window pane test when it comes to bread dough, it's a test where you stretch the dough thin enough so that you can see the light coming through it. And if you can do that without tearing the dough, it's a good sign that it's ready. And God's testing is like that. It's done with purpose, and it's done to strengthen. And, and this isn't the first time that God has tested Abraham. God tested his obedience when he called Abraham to leave his home and leave his family and go to the region that God was going to show him. And God tested Abraham's patience when Abraham had to wait decades for the son that God promised. And here God is testing Abraham's trust when he asks him to do the unthinkable. Take the promised son, decades, a a lifetime in waiting and coming and to kill him as a sacrifice. And so how, how does Abraham respond to this unbelievable command? And we continue in, verse tw- in, in chapter 22. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. So how does Abraham respond? Abraham got up and he went. Most of us would probably balk at a command like this. 
But Abraham immediately moves to obey early the next morning, taking Isaac and two servants with him. And it's noteworthy here that, that God doesn't ask Abraham to just go outside and perform the sacrifice right then and there. Instead, he directs him to a location that's a three-day trip away. And in many ways, this, this is a test within a test. Abraham has three days to agonize over what he's going to do. And Abraham has three days to question what God is asking him to do. Abraham has three days to lose faith and turn around. But Abraham doesn't turn around. And in this, we see the first of four major displays of trust that Abraham shows towards God in this story. Abraham doesn't know what God has planned, but as God has revealed himself to Abraham over the years, Abraham has come to realize that God has the details worked out. And you know what? I have to imagine that there's fear and apprehension swirling around in his mind. But his trust in who he knows God to be keeps him marching on. And so we we pick up the story now at the arrival at God's chosen destination. And in, in this moment, we see Abraham's second display of trust. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So at the foot of the hill, Abraham and Isaac leave their servants to make their ascent to where the sacrifice will take place. And take note of Abraham's language as they part with the servants. He says, we will go up, and we will come back to you. Again, Abraham doesn't know what God's plan is in all of this, He doesn't know exactly how God is going to work it out. But what he does know is what God has already promised him. That he would have a son. That the number of his descendants would be like the number of the stars in the sky. And that these promises would be accomplished through Isaac. In Genesis 21, as Abraham agonizes over what to do about Ishmael, God affirms that it's through Isaac that he will fulfill his promise. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 12. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So then, is, is it possible that God changed his mind? Is it possible that God is ignoring or forgot what he had already promised? Abraham doesn't seem to think so. The author of Hebrews describes Abraham's trust in this way. He says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham had embraced or trusted the promises of God. And it was that trust that allowed him to obey God, knowing that God's current command would not wipe out previous promises. Abraham had faith that one way or another, Isaac would be walking back down that mountain with him. 
So based on, on what we have here up to this point, it seems that, that, Isaac, that Abraham has kept Isaac somewhat in the dark on the plan. But Isaac starts noticing that something seems to be off. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up. And he said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So father and son are hiking up the mountain and Isaac notices that they're missing a key element to a sacrifice, the animal. And understandably then, he asks his dad about this apparent oversight. He says, basically, we've got the wood, fire, and a knife, but nothing to sacrifice. What are we going to do about that? And Abraham's response here is is that third display of trust in the story. Abraham states that God will provide the lamb. Once again, Abraham trusts God, trusts his character, and trusts his promise. And that trust leads him to have faith this is not the last day Isaac will walk the earth. And from an outside perspective, these two previous statements may seem diluted. Uh, Wheaton College professor John Walton puts it this way in his commentary on Genesis. He says, it's easy from the human perspective to identify these as dissembling statements or evidences that he is in denial. But faith would sound no different. And God knows the heart. It's important to understand that he has not arrived at his confidence because God has somehow informed him of the outcome. These, sta- these statements echo his faith. So, so during the journey, God hasn't filled Abraham in on the details. Abraham is entirely operating on his faith and who he knows God to be. And this explanation is, is apparently sufficient for Isaac, and the two of them continue on as we approach the climax of this story. Verses 9 and 10, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And here we come to Abraham's final and most dramatic display of trust in God. The journey is over. The altar is built. His son is bound and the knife is raised. God is running out of time to intervene before Abraham is compelled to kill the promised son. But even in this moment, Abraham's faith doesn't falter. And as we see, Abraham's faith is well-founded. Verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Genesis 22:11 is arguably one of the most dramatic moments in all of scripture. And this, this moment is masterfully depicted in the famous Rembrandt painting, Sacrifice of Isaac. And this story is not only dramatic because of the last minute intervention of God, but also because of what it reveals about who God is. 
This moment reveals God's faithfulness to his word. It reveals God's love and care for his creation. It reveals how God works in his own perfect timing. And it reveals God's desire for us to act on our fear and knowledge of God. In this, God says, now I know you fear God. Does this mean that God didn't have that knowledge before? No. Being omniscient, God knew the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story before it even started. But knowledge and experience are different things. Walton puts it this way. He says, we can agree that God knew ahead of time what Abraham was going to do. But there is ample evidence throughout Scripture that God desires us to act out our faith and worship regardless of the fact that he knows our hearts. God wants us to pray even though he knows what we are going to say and may already have the answer in motion. He wants us to praise him even though he knows how we feel. God asks us to express our faith and love. It is honoring to him for us to demonstrate those things that he knows exist because it pleases him. And this is what God was testing or or stretching by asking Abraham to do this. His willingness to act on the faith and trust Abraham had in God. And this would be an incredible story on its own if it had ended here. But God takes it a step further, and in doing so, he continues to reveal the details of how he intends to redeem his creation. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And here, in this moment, is where the fingerprints of God's plan for mankind's redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are undeniably on this story. In many ways, this is a miniaturized version of the gospel told through the perspective of what God does for for a single family. The apex of, of this story is the intervention of God sparing the life of Isaac by providing a ram to take his place. Whereas the apex of the story of, re, of the redemption of mankind is God's in, intervention in not withholding his own son. Instead, sending him to take on flesh, live a perfect life, and die in our place in order to spare us from the eternal consequences of our own sin. And that's sort of the macro view of it. But if we look at it through the lens of our own lives, uh, I think we we certainly can relate with the characters. Like Isaac was traveling towards his death as his father acted in obedience to God, we are marching inexorably towards our doom because of our sin. Our sin has caused the debt to God that only life and blood can pay for. And as he provided a ram for Isaac and Abraham, God provided a way out of our debt through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. As we've seen, Abraham didn't withhold his son from God. And as we know, God doesn't withhold his son, and he does that for us. And the big difference 
between these stories is that there was nothing or nobody who could have taken the place of God's Son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. It had to be him. And in those actions, God in sending, Jesus in dying, they showed their incomparable love and faithfulness towards us. But this account wasn't just a shadow of what God would do someday, but it was actually an essential part of what God already had in motion. See what the angel communicated to Abraham at the, clu- at the conclusion of this story. Verses 15 through 19. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So just as he did in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God makes a promise that Abraham's descendants would someday be a great nation that they would take possession of the land God had promised, and that through the line of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. And this, of course, refers to Jesus coming from the line of Abraham through the line of David. And here God swears by himself, having nothing higher to swear by, that because of Abraham's display of faith and trust, this promise will be fulfilled. And so today, we can be thankful for the trust of Father Abraham as we celebrate the birth of his great, 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 however many great, grandson, Jesus Christ. At the conclusion of this test, or or again, the stretching, I have to imagine that the faith and trust that both Abraham and Isaac had for God must have been strengthened as tends to be the case when God stretches our limits. So then, what, what are we to do with this? We have an, we have an understanding of the, of the what and why of these events, but what do we do with this as those who are no longer waiting for the arrival of the promised Messiah? I think we can pick out three words repeated twice in the story and seek to apply the heart behind them in our own lives. Abraham responds to the God, uh, to the call of God twice in this story with the same three words. Here I am. I have to imagine that the inflection of those words um, were different at the climax of this story than they were at the beginning. At the beginning, Abraham responds to God in the midst of stability and plenty in his life. And at the climax, Abraham responds within a moment of intense anguish. And what we should learn from this is what our proper response to the call of God on our lives should look like. In times of comfort, ease, and stability, are we ready to heed the call of God on our lives, even if that means giving up the blessings of God in order to follow him? In times of testing, trial, and pain, are we ready to follow God 
wherever he takes us. And again, sometimes the promises of God lead us into, into greater blessing. But sometimes God does call us to go into a time of testing, to go into a time of trial. And I think our ability to do this, our ability to follow God in the midst of these things, starts with our ability to answer one question. Do you trust God? Another way to ask that would be, do you take God at his word? God, God has given us plenty of reasons to trust him in the 66 books of the Bible. And even more through the testimonies of those around us. And you know what? In three days, we celebrate the greatest reason God has given us to take him at his word. And sending his one and only son, knowing full well that he was going to have to die on the cross for our sins. I, I don't know where, where, where you are this Christmas season. Maybe you're in a stable and comfortable place in life. And it's easy for you to approach this holiday with joy and anticipation. But perhaps things have been rough lately. And this, this time of year isn't holding much excitement for you. But regardless of your situation, just as in Genesis 22, God called out Abraham, Abraham, by sending his son into, into the world, God is calling us. He's calling us by name. He's calling us to trust him. He's calling us to rely on him. He's calling us to follow him. And so as we close this morning, I want to leave you with one simple, simple thought to ponder. Are you ready to say, here I am?